For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems things like hard starts rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup sea foam can help your engine run better and last longer simply pour a can in your gas tank hunters and anglers rely on sea foam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. From Meat Eaters World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal. A sloth bear attacked six people last week outside of Banergata National Park. Banergata is located in the Karnataka region of India, about 100 kilometers from Bangalore. The park itself is 100 square miles in size. Adult sloth bears range anywhere from 120 to 320 pounds in size and are theorized to be a missing link type of bear that evolved to their current form in the Pleistocene which means this critter hit its stride anywhere from 2.5 million years ago to 12,000 years ago, and maybe an offshoot of the modern brown bear. The sloth bear gets its secondary name, labian bear, due to its longer-than-usual lips, its primary name from its slow, shuffling walk. The sloth bear has long claws specialized to tear open termite mounds, but these long claws make them poor climbers which may be the root of this surprisingly non-sloth-like fact. Sloth bear attacks on the ever-encroaching human populations are very common. In fact, sloth bear attacks in India count for more attacks than the entire distribution of fearsome brown bears in the world. If you consider the fact that humans hunted the sloth bears, in some cases, only for their baculum, or penis bone, the attacks make a lot of sense. This week, we've got the Migratory Bird Act, really old dogs, and fashion. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week, as well as this podcast, is brought to you by Steel Power Equipment. Steel, makers of the world's finest gas and battery-powered chainsaws. 
if you were like me and you are the strange kid on your block who loves to get up at 3.30 in the morning and drive to some turkey destination you've fantasized about all week, don't forget to have that clean, quiet, no stinking, steel battery-powered saw underneath the truck seat, or heck, even in your Prius. Don't let a downed tree block you from a good time. Cut that sucker out of there. Go kill that wily old Thomas, then come back and have a nice little fire. Go to SteelUSA.com and find a dealer near you. Now you've all heard me talk about the ease of Osobuco and the fact that bear shanks, the four legs of bears, make the best Osobuco. Well, if you haven't, that is a fact. The tougher the leg, the better the buco. Well, a lot of folks love turkey hunting, and quite a few folks really love the meat. And then there's a bunch of knuckleheads out there that think the legs are too tough to deal with. Well, considering you could use those legs as a hammer to tap in tent stakes into frozen ground, you're right about the toughness, but wrong in the fact that the legs aren't worth dealing with. Also buco, baby. Cut that drum into discs. If you want to do it fast, grab your steel lopping shears and do three or four precise pieces, brown them up on both sides, throw some veggies in the crock pot, maybe a little lemon, thyme, rosemary, bay leaf, and for the birds, I like white beans, which is not technically also buco, but who cares, it's delicious. Let it go at a nice simmer while you go make that tail fan arrangement or a necklace out of turkey spurs. You'll be in hog heaven later. <coughs> Moving on to the rules and legislation desk. The great state of New Mexico, the land of enchantment, signed into law Senate Bill 32, which makes it illegal to trap on public lands, and in so doing, made my heart hurt a little bit. You see, I love the state of New Mexico, love the people, and just like when you find out that your folks make mistakes and don't actually know everything at some tender age, I just didn't see it coming. New Mexico is about 52% private land. On those lands, with permission, an enterprising youth can still run a trap line. Across the three-strand barbed wire on public land, one cannot. If you are anti-trapping, do you think animals on private land want to live less than those on public? That'd be a tough case to make. There are about 9 million acres of national forests, 13 million acres of BLM in the state of New Mexico. On these public lands, tribal members, wildlife management agencies, and those conducting research are still able to trap. State Bill 32 was presented as a bill that protected domestic dogs from the snares and leg hold traps of the very few sloppy trappers who set them too close to trails, commonly used by hikers and dog walkers. Do agencies, tribal members, and researchers not make mistakes? They not have dogs? Do their traps not inflict trauma on animals? Just as golf. You know, the game on the uh, fancy uh, lawn with the sticks. Just like that game can be a menacing sport if the golfer were to decide to pivot 90 degrees on a tee box next to a highway and launch a Titleist into oncoming traffic, traps in the hands of the uncaring can lead to a bad outcome. In the golf scenario, 
the misuse of equipment would never lead to the banishment of the activity from the entire state, or more accurately, only shut it down on public courses. However, in the case of trapping, a few bad actors irresponsibly using traps were used as an example to condemn public land trappers on more than 22 million acres. The reason I enjoy my time in New Mexico when I'm tromping around is I do not see hikers and dog walkers all over those 22 million acres of public land. Sure, I see them where you would expect to see them, but there is plenty of room to go around. It's a land of many uses. This situation irks me primarily as I find it dishonest. If you want to be anti-trapping, just be anti-trapping. Make sure you don't dress in the southwestern style, though. You'll have to give up a lot of the fedoras and cowboy hats and belts and boots, and you'll always have to ask before you put your rump in that car seat, is this real or faux leather? At least then you're being honest, and that's fine. But don't make a case off of unleashed pets and the tiniest minority of trappers. Secondarily, this irks me, as I've said before on this podcast, this doesn't affect trappers on private land, only public. We lean a little bit closer to the king's game model when we make legislation that only hurts those on public land. Over the weekend, I was hanging out with my old outfitting buddy, first outfitter I ever worked for. And we were going through some photo albums, and he was holding up a bobcat as a young man. He said, it used to burn my old man's ass that I could go out, just a kid, with some traps and earn more money than he did. These were dirt poor folks out in eastern Colorado at the time. Colorado, as he likes to call it. And there's still plenty of those folks out there. And they're making a living responsibly off of a renewable resource. And this can be done in a way that, you know, you can slap that catch-all word humane on there if you would like. A lot of this meat is going in the crock pot at the family farm even. Just chaps me a little. We can chalk that up to opinion and a lesson. Never did I think this would happen in New Mexico, but it did. Vermont, Oregon, Washington all have had or do have similar bills. If you are thinking... This can't happen here. Look to old New Mexico. Next up, at the legislation, or in this case, rules desk, the Biden administration has announced that it will overturn a Trump-era exception to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, a foundational 1918 law protecting threatened birds from hunting and other human activity. The Trump rule protected companies whose activities killed listed birds as long as the killing was unintentional which really stuck it to all those businesses whose model is to go out and hit ruby-throated hummingbirds over the heads with sticks. No, the main reason that the MBTA, Migratory Bird Treaty Act, is effective in protecting birds from humans is by penalizing what is known as incidental take, or the killing of birds apart from expressly hunting for them. If a company's power lines or emissions or oil pits are killing birds, then that company needs to try to mitigate the damage. Think of those reflective spinning things you see on high-tension lines. Wind farms are notorious bird killers, particularly hard on golden eagles, Swainson's hawks, kestrels. So oftentimes, to mitigate that, the ground around the turbines will be tilled or planted in a fashion to reduce the attractiveness of the area to those species. In short, 
we aren't talking about significant changes to business here. Most responsible companies build this into their operations or work hard with conservation organizations to do that. And so the MBTA only penalizes companies that don't put protective measures in place or show gross negligence that causes significant bird deaths. For example, the BP oil spill way back in 2010, BP had been warned repeatedly that its rigs needed maintenance but ignored that information and then the explosion and resulting spill killed millions of birds. But no one at BP was exactly sitting in a conference room, twisting his mustache and plotting how to kill those birds. The damage was technically unintentional. If that spill happened today, the company could have escaped without paying for its impact. As it was, because of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, BP paid over $100 million toward bird habitat restoration, which led to significant bird recovery in the Gulf. In short, this rule reversal is good news out of D.C. Who'd have thought that was possible? A lot of people think that getting life insurance means you're insuring yourself for yourself, but it's actually the exact opposite. It's insuring yourself for your family. So if something happens to me and I'm not around anymore, I can have more peace of mind that my family can have some financial support. And that's where Fabric by Gerber Life comes in. More than once in my life, my journey, people have described me as an independent person. And that's how I want to stay even when I'm dead. That's how I want to be remembered. That's why I have life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. If you've got kids, and especially if you're young and healthy, the time to lock in low rates is now. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash cal. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. You've heard that name before because I've talked about them here on this podcast. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. Now, it's wild axis deer, which is an invasive species, but this operation is monitored and observed by the USDA, and they can commercially sell axis deer. Last time I went out to uh, Maui to hunt axis, I did not kill one, which is where Maui Nui Venison would come in very handy for folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful and still want to have something in the freezer or uh, handy in the form of a snack stick that is as close to getting your own as you can get, which is what Maui Nui Venison is. You can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks, 
sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, Venison.com. And use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. Moving on and continuing our multi-episode coverage of Snort's Ancient Ancestors. If you don't remember, Snort, the star of the Snort Report, is my little yellow lab. Researchers have zeroed in on a single cave on the border of present-day Germany and Switzerland that seems to be a ground zero for the original human domestication of wolves into dogs. In a study published in the journal Scientific Reports, the authors examined 16,000-year-old evidence from the Gunners Hooli Cave using analysis from several different disciplines to understand the canids who lived alongside humans there. The genetic analysis of the animal remains revealed that these weren't fully wolves or fully dogs, but rather a hybrid capturing the transition of wolf into dog. In fact, and I'm quoting from the study here, this DNA contained almost the entire breadth of genetic diversity of all contemporary and ancient dogs and most wolves. That means that even though the beginnings of domestication started earlier as wolves began to follow human migrations, This is likely one of the very few places that intentional dog breeding by humans happened for the first time. Makes you think, if modern dog is man's best friend, would these ancient hybrids be considered man's best acquaintance? Or man's best friend of friend? Hmm. The team also used isotope analysis, meaning they broke down samples of bone and other tissue to see what these canids had been eating. And it turns out that they were consuming a lot less protein than wild wolves at the time were. Because of the difference in diet between hybrids and their wolfier kin, the team concluded that humans must have been feeding them as consistent partners rather than incidentally leaving food scraps behind. Which is significant if you think about it. That means resources, dedicated resources to dog, the very infancy of spoiled dog culture. On one end of the spectrum, dog follow human, hope for scraps left behind. On the other end of the spectrum, dog carried by human and matching designer sweatsuit, and dog knows damned well it will be fed and that feeding will have nothing to do with the level of contribution to the relationship. This is Sebastian Phineas. He goes by Sebastian. He loves meeting other dogs. He'll never bark if he sees people. That conclusion, that ancient humans were feeding early dogs a largely plant-based low-protein diet, is a pretty fascinating conclusion as well, especially in light of another study that came out recently suggesting that ancient humans were eating much more meat and a lot less vegetables than we do today. In that study, a team from Tel Aviv University analyzed over 400 scientific papers to understand as many aspects of early human diet and food gathering as possible. Among many other signs of a diet high in animal protein, they cite the fact that humans develop stomach acid, something that only predators do, as the acid helps kill potentially toxic meat-borne bacteria. For those of you who suffer from acid reflux, you've got adventurous eaters in your past to thank. According to the paper, starting about 40,000 years ago, humans began a steady move away from so-called hypercarnivory. And this shift to eating more plants only intensified after the widespread adoption of agriculture. So this progression away from eating almost entirely meat 
would seem to fit with the evidence that by just 16,000 years ago, less meat was being fed to man's prehistoric best friend. This could still be seen as animal protein being harder to acquire, thus higher value. Few scraps make it to the dogs, because they're valuable to humans. Now, I have had a pretty long line of yellow labs in my life. All of them have seemed happy to consume apple cores, carrots, potatoes, corn, on the cob, and the stalk itself. But my observations say the greener the non-meat food, the less appetizing for the dog. Which is funny to think of if you've ever watched your pampered dog try to devour roadkill or some other green meat. If you listen to the Meat Eater podcast with the fantastic Dr. David Meltzer, you'll hear him say dogs were the first domesticated animal on the planet, which is a fun thing to think about if you ever find yourself on a hunt, laying on the ground next to the fire with the dog next to you, staring off into the darkness. You aren't unique. You're just repeating a trend that started some 16 to 20,000 years ago. You poser. Moving on to the muddying the waters desk. Some interesting new findings on walleye in the upper Midwest. We know that rising water temperatures over the last few decades have spelled trouble for the cold water species. Usually the warmer the water, the lower their growth rates and reproductive success. But it turns out that warmer temps might not be the only factor in play here. A team of scientists at Penn State has been examining the role of water turbidity in mitigating the effects of higher temperatures on walleye. Turbidity is a lack of clarity in water caused by sediment or other tiny particles suspended in that water. Just to get a little nerdier on this topic, you measure the turbidity of water by beaming light through your sample and then recording how much light hits a sensor positioned at a 90 degree angle to the light source. In clear water, the light shoots straight through. In cloudy water, the light hits the little suspended particles and scatters in all directions, so more light hits that sensor at the 90 degree angle. This technique is called nephilometry, and so the cloudiness of water is measured in nephilometric turbidity units, or NTUs. So now you know that. Turns out that when a body of water is more turbid, its temperature can climb and walleye populations hold steady. When NTUs go down, meaning the water gets clearer, heat has a more direct negative effect on walleye. So clear warm water, bad. Turbid warm water, not so bad. The Penn State scientists don't speculate on why cloudier warm water is easier on walleye than clear warm water. But we do know a few other effects of direct sunlight in warm clear water, such as increased algae growth, which can consume oxygen. If you've ever spearfished, you know that clear water can be great for visibility, but bad for getting within range of a fish. We also know that in systems with invasive zebra mussels, the plankton they eat clears the water. The absence of plankton isn't a big deal for mature fish, but for fish in the earliest stages of life, it is also what they eat. So when little fish have nothing to eat, they don't last long enough to be eaten by big fish. And big fish would have to travel farther in low oxygen scenarios with upped algae growth, meaning that that clear water sure looks pretty, but it can be a sign that life in the ecosystem is dying out. 
and maybe I should have gone to Penn State. It could be that when temps rise in the absence of zebra mussels, plankton is more abundant. The water stays cloudier and the food sources walleye depend on are easier to find, which offsets the heat stress. Again, I'm going beyond the conclusions of the Penn State study, but one thing is for sure. It is only in a lab that one factor can be isolated as the cause of a particular phenomenon. In the field, there are always dozens or hundreds or millions of factors all coming together to create a certain situation. Moving on to the blue steel desk. The fashion industry may be riding to the rescue in solving the Burmese python infestation in the Florida Everglades. The fashion designer, El Barbado, recently unveiled a line of clothing and accessories made from the skins of pythons that she and her father hunted south of Miami. Barbado's dad sounds like my kind of guy. When he and a friend began to have success bagging pythons, he started skinning them and storing the hides without a definite purpose in mind. According to the fashion blog, Days Digital, he told his daughter, I'm not going to have Mother Earth pissed off at me for not honoring this snake's life and using every single part of it. Barbado, a designer who cut her teeth working on Kanye West's Yeezy line of clothing, started working with the snake hides, then added more that she had hunted herself. And this spring, she came out with her hunting-inspired collection, including a piece based on the kind of ghillie suit you might wear while going after gobblers. Incidentally, this isn't the first time that Kanye West-related fashion and the hunting industry have intersected. You may remember back in 2018 when the company that owns Realtree Camo sued West for pirating their copyrighted pattern for use on several items, including a pair of thigh-high stiletto heel boots. You know, I should dust off my pair of those boots. I got a ton of compliments on them. Anyway, the blog post refers to Bibedo's python skin line as, quote, utilitarian. And although I will concede that her pieces may serve you better in the field than this spring's offerings from Louis Vuitton or Balenciaga, I don't think there is a threat to the traditional camo industry here. But if this trend were to explode in popularity, maybe we would stand a chance of bringing python numbers under control. After all, as we've discussed before, entire species of shorebirds like egrets and spoonbills were almost wiped out in the 1800s by plume hunters supplying feathers for the fancy hats of the well-to-do. At the height of the industry, plumes were worth more than gold. So, if somehow we could make python skin the must-have accessory for anyone who wants to wow the paparazzi at con once quarantine is lifted, Maybe we could drive the price of snake hides to the moon. Then, ambitious market hunters would descend on South Florida and solve the problem faster than the Python Bowl or any state of Florida marketing attempt ever will. Kim Kardashian, if you're listening out there, and I know you are, slide into the DMs and let's make this happen. That's all I got for you this week. Thanks so much for listening. If you're loving what you're hearing, be sure to tell a friend about Cal's Week in Review. But most importantly, write in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's AskCal at TheMeatEater.com and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. 
outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.